Last week I went to an art museum in Richmond with my wife, who's an artist. I'll admit that uh, it's not easy for me to walk through a building the size of a city block full of paintings and explanations of those paintings. I'm probably giving away my class here, but after the first few dozen pieces, my mind enters this sort of numb, buzzing state of overstimulation. But it comes to be much better if you have someone next to you saying, Look how Rembrandt, for instance, paints his beloved wife into scenes all of his life, far after your death, and you begin to pick her out. Look at his devotion. You see this guy over here with his dirty feet, the placement of the finger in the book, the eyes a little off access. It's suggestive. It's actually scintillatingly scandalous. Here's who they were painting for. Here's why it matters. Meanwhile, Melissa gets to go through art museums with the priest, someone who can tell the scriptural stories that a vast quantity of the paintings in art history depict, someone who points out things like Hagar in the wilderness, for example. Artists love Hagar for the opportunity to paint a desert landscape, but I love her for different reasons. You know her story? Abraham and Sarah cannot have a child, so our forefather Abraham sleeps with Hagar, his Egyptian slave woman, and she conceives. Sarah is furiously jealous of Hagar and sends this defenseless pregnant woman into the wilderness on her own. And what happens next is unprecedented and unrepeated. The Lord comes to her, and Hagar names God as El Roy, the God who sees. We get this singular instance of someone seeing God. And that's what she says. Have I really seen God and lived? This woman, this slave, foreign, dirty woman, sees and names God. It's scandalous. There are things like that all over the Bible, things that don't fit, that jut out irregularly. Like, despite all of the patriarchal systems and filters and the insistence on chosenness and purity and the repeated declaration that no one sees God and lives, someone like Hagar gets into our canon. The God who sees... The God who sees everyone's side of the story, not just the protagonist's. So think back before our seven-month-long gospel reading this morning. Um, Back, back, back to the Old Testament reading so long ago that Charlotte read for us when we heard the story of Samuel anointing David. Israel wanted a king. And it's Samuel's job to find one. So he looks out over all of Israel and spies Saul, presumably because he's tall. (laughs) He is the tallest man in the country and the most handsome, the scripture says. So it's like he's looking at a crowd, and there he is, just sort of bumped out. But King Saul messes up once he's made king. Nothing too remarkable 
But God's response is that God feels regret. He says, I can't believe I chose this guy. What a mistake. Remarkable. You can't get much further from the passionless, unmoved mover of Aristotle in the God that we encounter here. Our translation is a little off for today, but God tells Samuel in our reading that he has seen for himself a king among Jesse's sons. Seven sons are paraded before Samuel, seven being the number of perfection, completeness, but none of them are the one. It was the eighth son, the youngest, who Samuel couldn't even see, who God saw. But David, when he becomes king, his own sight will do him in. When he becomes king, the king who has everything in the world, he commits adultery and murder to obtain a woman he sees bathing on a rooftop. The man after God's own heart, the scriptures say, and yet his vision can't be trusted either. And by this time in the scriptural narrative, you might ask, okay, like, whose vision can be trusted? If it's not the forefathers or the foremothers or the prophets or the people God puts in power or the people after God's own heart. If God feels regret, whose vision is it? This is a very good question to ask. Test everything, Paul directs us. Hold on to the good. What we've received, what we hear, the visions of our own must be sifted. It's not the easiest way. It's not the way I would expect God to act, really. Think about our 26.2 mile long gospel today. Jesus doesn't come along and heal blindness forever. One man born blind opens his eyes. Last week, Jesus didn't reconcile all the world to the Jews. One Samaritan woman came to believe. Next week, death won't be undone for all our our loved ones. It will be for just one man, Lazarus. This isn't what we would call a very effective program for change. It's such a small answer to us, with national systems of health care, vaccinations to eradicate disease, even more with our influence, our status, or brands, or the global or national or even regional celebrity of ability or look or prestige in medicine or law or politics or art or, you know, like preaching, Jesus works on such a small scale. Wendell Berry writes in an essay entitled Less Energy, More Life that people of religion have generally entrusted questions about economy, about how we live, to economists and industrialists. Environmentalists seem to think that problems caused by technology can be solved or controlled by more technology or alternative technology. Both people of both kinds seem to think that big problems 
have big solutions. Both are mistaken, he says. If we're serious about these big problems, we have got to see that solutions begin and end with ourselves. That sounds like Jesus. That sounds like scripture, at least. The way that God has shown God works imperfectly, but restoring our focus to the community in which we live. It sounds strange to us, which can be a hint that one is leaving the world's way of seeing. To follow Jesus is to open our eyes to the world right around us, the ones on the blurred edges of our imperfect visions, to begin to see the earth beneath our feet. What a load off of us, too. The savior of the world and maker of all that is, seen and unseen, came and healed one blind man this week. A small action in one community that will eventually ripple through time all the way to us. And so with your work. It will be seen in something as singular as your neighbor. One piece of art, one page of a sermon. They are imperfect and small as to be nearly imperceptible. But small is the value of it. We're being taught how to see that the work of God begins and ends with ourselves.